Welcome back to another episode of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. Thank you for showing up for another episode here to my podcast. Welcome to new listeners and welcome back to my subscribers. This will be my final episode before my mid-season break, which I'll talk about again at the end of the episode. But uh, the next two weeks, you will not be seeing new episodes from Independent Thought. So just be aware of that. Our next episode will be on October the 11th. So make sure you are subscribed so you do not miss our return to the podcast. But jumping right into this episode, we are talking today about booster shots for coronavirus. The COVID-19 booster shots have been a hot topic going on in our news cycle recently. So I wanted to take a minute here to talk about them. Some of the sources I'm using for today's episode include Time, Fox News, Yahoo, CNBC, The New York Times, Breaking Points, and the BBC. So let's just just jump right into this. Back, I think this was August 18th or 19th, it it was roughly about a month ago, the, Bi- well, the Biden administration, actually, well, President Biden himself announced that his administration would like to see Americans, basically for the entire general public, start to get booster shots, I think it was six months after you've received your second dose. Now, this immediately sent so many people into a frenzy, sparked a bunch of conspiracy theories, sparked lots of outrage on the political right. And yeah, it just it was, it was a very controversial statement uh, for some people and other people were also very happy to hear this, thinking that this will be a good thing overall, as there have been some reports coming out about the effectiveness of the COVID-19 vaccines long term. We'll get into that in a minute. But I personally understood why the Biden administration was asking for booster shots to be available in general. You know, the pandemic is still going on, even though when you look around life in America right now, if you're watching football games on Saturdays or Sundays, it would seem as though many people in in our country uh, just no longer think that COVID is an issue, even though the death toll now is currently higher than it was a year ago today. 670,000 Americans have died from COVID. Across the globe, that number is close to 5 million. And so, yeah, I I understand the need for trying to go out and promote booster shots, getting people more protected from this virus. You know, with all that being said, though, like, like where exactly did this come from? Because if you check back on the clock about like two months ago, actually, I'm sorry, not two months ago, maybe like three or four months ago now. We were all in the belief system that if enough people just get vaccinated, that this is all going to go away. However, the Delta variant seemed to have other you know, plans for us globally. The Delta variant is a mutation of the original 
coronavirus variants. It first popped up in December of 2020 in India and is now the dominant strain in several nations across the world. I think currently it is the dominant strain in more than 12 nations and it's projected to overtake the original alpha variant here in America in the upcoming weeks, if not, well, months, if not weeks. That is the current projection of what we are seeing here in our country. And we are just not entirely sure because we don't have enough data at the moment, you know, just how effective our vaccines are going to be long-term against the Delta variant. From what we're seeing so far, studies are showing that the Pfizer vaccine continues to be around 88% effective against Delta. However, it is also showing that at the same time that over time, the vaccine seems to be weakening a little bit. How much so is still unsure as studies are still being done. You know, we are in real time trying to conduct, you know, tests can, you know, like compile data. And so all this is happening in real time. But, you know, before I go any further into this episode, I'm going to be talking about my feelings on on booster shots, but I kind of want to just kind of put all my cards on the table here. I, I understand, again, the reason that we need to be advocating for people to get vaccinated, why so many people are probably going to need booster shots, especially those who are elderly or immunocompromised. I'm in no way, shape or form against vaccinations. I have two doses of the Pfizer vaccine coursing through me right now that have been there for months. And so I get it. I understand. I, I think that people should get vaccinated, you know, and currently we don't have herd immunity in this country, not anywhere close. Currently 55% of Americans are vaccinated. So we're definitely not close to that herd immunity number, but when it comes to booster shots for everyone, for the entire general public, I'm a little skeptical. I'm not gonna lie to you all. I, I think it's not because I don't think that certain people need it. I know that certain people do need it. Again, the elderly, the immunocompromised, but generally speaking, it, and it's not that I don't think that it wouldn't be a good thing for everyone, but it, it feels a little immoral. I, I, I can't lie to you. And here's my reasoning for it. You know, currently, 57% of the global population has not received a single dose of the vaccine, not one. On top of that fact, 75% of all vaccine doses have gone to just 10 countries, just 10. That's it. In fact, if you want to dive a little bit deeper into the statistics, only 2% of the entire continent of Africa has been vaccinated. That is 1.2 billion people in that continent across all 53 nations in Africa. So we're talking roughly speaking, 24 million people in the continent of, of Africa. Please don't call it a country. I hate when people do that, just dumb. Anyway, 24 million people approximately across the entire continent of Africa have been vaccinated and that is compared to 182 million people who've been vaccinated just in our country, just in America. We have nearly eight times the amount of vaccinated people in America than that whole continent has. I, it, it, it doesn't sit right with me. It doesn't sit right with me that we as a nation are lining up 
to get our third shot for again not for the elderly not for the immunocompromised those people go get your booster shots but for everyone else it, it feels immoral that we're lining up for our third shot when so many people in the world haven't had their first yet and let's talk about what we're talking about here because the vaccine is supposed to be a protection from coronavirus right and so we're we're trying to get these vaccines in people so that if they come into contact with the virus that they don't get hospitalized or possibly you know die from this from this virus and so who's more likely to be devastated by contracting coronavirus the average american or the average person living in a poor nation in africa what kind of facilities do we have what kind of facilities do they have so obviously and thankfully i'm not the only person who feels this way the world the world health organization has asked these western nations including the us to put a moratorium on booster shots until the end of the year now this is not just people saying this abroad but also here at home as well as reports out of the new york times have said that some in the fda rejected that all americans need booster shots and then on top of that fact, two members actually announced their resignation from the FDA. And then later, these two same people went and published into a medical journal, basically them denouncing the Biden administration for its booster, you know, booster uh, shot policy. Now, these were not the only like two people to, to feel this way. You know, obviously, you know, I'm sure that some people have seen now that the FDA, you know, while it did approve booster shots for the elderly, again, and the immunocompromised, they also at the same time, their panel rejected in a vote of 16 to 2 against saying that booster shots should be administered to the general public. And one of the reasons that they said that they voted against this was them saying for there was two there was actually several reasons but two of the reasons that they noted was one they just didn't have enough evidence at the moment to say that booster shots were necessary for the general public but also they noted that and i'm glad that they said this that less than one percent of low-income countries have been fully vaccinated saying that that's a major problem and to my answer being duh of course it's a major problem this vaccine, I'm sorry, this virus isn't localized to America. If it is mutating in some other part of the world, it'll eventually make its way here. I mean, that's what happened with Delta, right? That's We're hearing that now with other mutations. Lambda popped up a few months ago. I mean, who knows if this will mutate again? There's like a Delta Plus version right now, which I got to say, as far as names are concerned, that's pretty weak. We need to be fixing these names here. Delta Plus, what is it, a streaming service? Sorry, Get, getting off track here. It is obviously a major problem. We need to be finding a way to get the rest of the world vaccinated, or at least they should have the access to get vaccinated. This is something that I, I thought that most people were on board with. Now, the I was looking at an article from the BBC back in May where they had you know, spoken with several world leaders who seemed like the one consensus that they all had together about how to deal with coronavirus was the fact that it was of the utmost importance that vaccines be distributed globally, saying that we are not protected 
until everyone has access to this vaccine. Now, some epidemiologists believe that the herd immunity level for the globe is around 70%. Now, are we anywhere close to that right now? The answer is no, it's absolutely not. And so how do we get that number up? You know, one of the things that I heard that was recommended before was that we should be getting rid of patent protections because currently there are several com companies who have the formula to these COVID-19 vaccines, but they're unwilling to share them with several other facilities around the world because, well, they haven't really, they haven't really given too many answers as to why they feel that way. But it's very unfortunate because if they did that, then more facilities could start administering the vaccine. And then we could be getting much larger quantities of the vaccine out to people all over the world. And obviously there were several countries that felt this way as well. In fact, India and South Africa, most notably proposed to the World Trade Organization last year that patents on vaccines should be waived which was then rejected by several Western nations and other big pharma companies. And, you know, their reasoning that they gave, which to be fair, seems a, seemed a little fair. I don't know the, I don't know the actual uh, truth behind this or not, but, you know, I'm just going to just go ahead and say what they said when they were speaking to the BBC, they said that if they were to give out the recipe of the vaccine, it would be like giving out, a, a recipe for, for a dish without having any ingredients or instructions or the people capable of reproducing it. They claimed that the mRNA vaccines are incredibly complex and that some of these vaccines, like the technology behind it took over a decade to develop so that even if you had the facility, like you would still not have the people or the, who had the wherewithal to actually pre, like create the vaccine, even if they had all the ingredients. And then on top of that, there was also saying that, you know, like some of the ingredients might not be available to certain people around the world. I don't know if that is inherently true or not. I'm just telling you what, what was reported, but here's my thing. If that is true, that there's not enough skilled scientists out there who know how to produce vaccines like this and that the ingredients for these vaccines isn't widely accessible to other people around the world, then that's where our focus should be. That's where our focus should be. If the goal is to eradicate COVID-19 or, or at least get it manageable enough to a point where we are bringing down this, this climbing death toll that we're seeing all over the world, then why aren't we investing into that? Instead, what we seem to be investing into or what we say we're investing into is an organization called COVAX. Now, COVAX is supposed to be, again, an organization that's supposed to be distributing vaccines across the globe right now. And to date, COVAX has distributed around 240 million doses of the vaccine across the world to 139 different countries. Now that's a pretty that's a pretty big number. And you know, on top of that fact, when the NIH director uh, appeared on Fox News recently, he also spoke to this because he was he was asked by Chris Wallace, you know, again, do you believe that it's moral 
that, you know, Americans are lining up for their third booster shot. While so many other people in the world have not gotten their first one, the NIH director noted the fact that, you know, that this was in fact, he said it in his words, that was a false choice. And that America is going out of its way right now to donate to entities like COVAX, saying that America has already donated 140 million doses to COVAX and plans to donate another 500 million more. So here's, here's the issue I have with this, because he, he also went on to say that, you know, there was no reason not to do booster shots here in America, because at most, what he said was, at the end of this year, we, would, we probably would maybe dish out 100 million. And I'll actually have, I'll link the video to this interview down in the description below, but it was really weird the way he said it. Cause he was trying to downplay it. Like, oh, well, we'll only be administering around a hundred million. I mean, it's not that big of a number if we do booster shots here in America, but he said that alongside of saying that we've donated 140 million to COVAX as if that's some large number. So it's very strange to kind of hear the director of the NIH kind of talk about this issue. But but here's the thing, truthfully speaking, if we were going to vaccinate the whole world, right, I mean, that would be around 14 billion doses if we were, if they were all Pfizer, let's just, let's just keep it simple. If we were going to vaccinate the world, we would need around 14 billion doses of Pfizer. If you want to get herd immunity, you need somewhere north of like five, five billion. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, you would need somewhere north of uh, 10 billion actually, um, doses in order to get herd immunity globally. So if you need around 10 billion doses globally, and you're bragging about the fact that we've gotten 140 million so far, and you're planning on donating another 500 million, so total 640 million doses, when you need 10 billion to reach herd immunity, there's, there's kind of something lacking there. There's just a little bit lacking there. Maybe Maybe someone needs to kind of rethink our investments to the global population as far as what they need in order for us to reach herd immunity. Because truthfully, that is, that is that's what it's going to take in order for us to finally turn the page on this pandemic. Because we can talk day and night about what we're doing here in America, but honestly, it doesn't quite matter enough if the rest of the world isn't becoming vaccinated. Now, with all that being said, COVAX is trying to do what it can to get these poor nations vaccinated. But unfortunately, what they're saying is that they just currently don't have enough funding. They were counting on the richer nations of the world to donate more vaccines to them. And it just seems as though wealthy nations like the U.S. are just not donating enough. COVAX originally wanted the poorer nations of the world to be receiving vaccines at the same rate as the richer nations. That's not happening. On, on top of that fact, they wanted to have 2 billion doses administered globally by the end of 2021. And like I said earlier, they've only done so far 240 million. So they're not getting to that 2 billion number by the end of the year. On the current path, it is said that the poorer nations of this world probably won't even get above a 50% vaccination rate until 2023. 
So the bottom line is we're not doing enough. That, that's really the bottom line. That, that's the point that I'm trying to get to right now. We are talking about booster shots here in America because we are trying to have people protected from the virus. But what I'm trying to say here, and this is something that I said on a, on a panel episode that I did recently, is if we're really taking this seriously, if you really want to protect yourself from COVID-19, if that, if that is truly what our goal is, we're not going to accomplish that just by focusing on 10 nations and making sure that 10 nations are super vaccinated while we leave the rest of the world just hanging on by a thread. Nothing is going to stop this virus from mutating in other parts of the world and then making its way here at, to which our current vaccines become obsolete because they weren't designed for these new mutations that might pop up. It, I don't need to be an epidemiologist to see how, how logical that is. That's just, it's just common sense at this point. If we are not investing as thoroughly in the rest of the world as we are here in America, then this is all going to be for naught. So I'm not sure exactly what the Biden administration plans to do to help the rest of the globe. I'm not sure what Big Pharma is going to do. I'm not sure exactly what people in, in general are going to do to help COVAX get more vaccines in the hands of people globally. But what we're doing currently is just not enough, everyone. And I personally, again, when it comes to booster shots, I do feel uncomfortable with people going and getting their third shot if they're not elderly or immunocompromised while the rest of the world is literally hanging on by a thread. So that's, that is my take on booster shots. Uh, if you have a differing opinion, please send me a DM, comment on this episode. And, and tell me what you think about booster shots. I'm not sure exactly what's going to come next, but it sounds like the Biden administration is meeting with several world leaders here uh, this week in order to discuss booster shots and other types of uh, vaccine plans. So I'm sure that by the time this episode comes out and people listening to it, that there might be an update on information that I gave in this episode. So just keep up with the news, everyone. The Sources I had for this episode will be in the description. So please go ahead and check out those sources, read up on the articles, listen to the videos that are posted. And if you have any questions, reach out to me and let's talk about booster shots because we, we need to figure out what we're doing with our global vaccine plan, truthfully speaking. With all that being said, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we will have my guest for this week for a brand new conversation. Stay tuned. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage inspired clothing, shoes and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. 
Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at bettysdivine.com. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode. Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. For my guest segment today, I am joined by Zach, the host of the Plaid Jacket Philosopher podcast. Thank you for coming on the show today, man. How you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm doing pretty well. Um, you know, we were talking a little bit pre-recording, but we, it sounds like we both got some smoke settling in our valley. So I'm yes. looking forward to that over the next week. But uh, other than that, it's good. I can't complain. We're in the middle of a bit of a heat wave here and uh, sweating, sweating at work, but <laughs> whatever. What can I do? Yeah, you know, speaking of which, you know, before we kind of dive into the questions here, uh, just could you tell everyone like what part of the world you're in? I, I think you're my first international guest, I, I have to think here. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm, uh, I'm honored. I'm from just outside of Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. So I'm about an hour to an hour and a half um, east, northeast of Vancouver uh, in the Fraser Valley. So um, yeah, coming from from the great white north, although it's not very white or very cold right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, my first uh, Canadian guest. I, I do appreciate you coming on. And, you know, when I was checking out your podcast previously, I kind of noticed that you had a little bit of a, a different feel from some other podcasts that I've listened to before, especially with what the emphasis is behind your podcast. And so, you know, as is custom, whenever a fellow podcaster comes on my podcast, I always ask them, the same question, which is, what was the motivation behind starting the Plaid Jacket Philosophers? Tell me a little bit about how it started and why this was an important subject for you. Yeah, thanks. Um, to be honest, most of it was, I mean, I've talked about it in some of my previous kind of early podcast episodes, but I'd spent a lot of time working um, up north in the oil fields or in mining. So that was underground mining and tunneling. And that was you know, it was rotation work. So I was on for anywhere between two weeks to four weeks on shift at a time, uh, that'd be away from home. And then I would come home for, you know, anywhere from three days to two weeks on my rotations off. So what I really found was while I was out of town, you know, you really end up leaning on your bunk mates, your coworkers, the guys that you're spending, again, every waking hour with for between two and four weeks, you have very spotty cell service. It's well, no cell service, but it's usually satellite internet and satellite phones. And those are unreliable at the best of times. So a lot of the time you, you don't have much contact with the outer world and you really start to lean on each other is what I found. Like you develop, I mean, I don't know of a better word to describe it other than kind of brotherhood. You really end up leaning on each other. And, you know, after the first week goes by and you've kind of gotten all the pleasantries out of the way and what's happened on your time off, 
uh, you know, real life starts to set in. You may have problems going on at home, but you can't talk to people at home at that time. And so you end up really discussing them and getting into a lot of deeper topics with the guys around you. And it was just something that I wanted to try to highlight on this podcast is because, you know, you look in media and you see the plumber walks in on a sitcom and they, you know, their pants hanging halfway down their, their butt. And, you know, they yeah. might grunt and groan a few things, but that's all that you ever see of tradespeople. And so right. I wanted to try to highlight that, you know, there's a lot of deeper thought, a lot of pride that's taken in working with your hands in being able to build something, see a project through. And that was really the inspiration for this podcast. Yeah. It, unfortunately it, you're right. It is a stereotype that we see in society. It, it feels as though, you know, this is not, just unique for people in this particular trade industry, but you know, many other jobs have been more or less stereotyped about what we believe that their lives are like or who they are as people, so on and so forth. So the, the question that I have for you is, when you do talk about these issues on your podcast, how exactly do you break them down? Like if someone were to come to your podcast, what could they expect from one of your episodes? Well, you know, I mean, like any podcast, you're kind of, you're figuring it out as you go along, I think, at least for me, I'm an amateur podcaster. But now, like, I'm trying to transition into just highlighting kind of the work ethic, the values, the kind of the feeling of accomplishment that you can get from working with your hands. I mean, I've had, the one thing that's kind of been most inspiring to me is being reached out to by younger apprentices, uh, kind of guys who are between 18 to 24, who've been yeah. reaching out and saying, like, you know, like, I really... I like this message and you know, either they've just started into the trade or they've been, been in it for a year or two. And you know, it's, it's tough to kind of, it's tough to kind of see a grander view of it. You know, that if you're just working in the mud and the muck and you're kind of a low level employee, but I, I try to kind of spread that message that I know, at least when I was an apprentice, it's, you know, it, the earliest years are the toughest, but you can yeah. really, you can build your, you can build your career up from that literally with your own two hands. Um, there's very little obstacles in the way of it. As far as post-secondary training, you don't have to take on a big student loan to get into this. And right. it's just, it's just the idea of, yeah, the, the work ethic and the morals and kind of the values of working with your hands and of, you know, the camaraderie that comes with working in a, a workforce. Right. And, and so I guess there, it, there does seem to be somewhat of a stigma attached to these more blue collar jobs. You know, I think that there's always been this heavy emphasis on people going to college and not enough people really advocate for trade schools. I mean, we even hear this through the way politicians speak. They're always talking about, you know, we should be expanding college or we should be talking about who should be paying for college. But the conversations rarely ever get into the aspects of whether or not we should be expanding access to trade schools or incentivizing people to go into trade schools. You know, just in your opinion, what should the narrative be around these blue collar jobs as someone who is involved in this field? Well, I think the biggest thing is that it's not uh, like I refer to it, you know, as a job, I use job and career interchangeably fairly often, but the realization that it is a career, that this isn't just a job that you can, you know, I mean, if you want to, if you want to pick up a few extra bucks while you're going to university, you can, you can get into a labor field. Uh, that's definitely not going to give you the best taste in your mouth as far as what trades are, because that is the lowest level position, but this, it really is a career and you can build it up with, like I said, very little overhead as far as schooling goes. It, it obviously depends on the course, like um, aerospace technicians or an aircraft mechanic, they're going to have a little bit more overhead. There's a lot more time spent in shop tools, all that stuff. But as far as the construction trades you're talking about, 
um, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, welders, anything like that, those careers can very easily net you, you know, a six figure plus income. And yeah. the fact that it isn't advertised that way, that it's, you know, if you don't get a post-secondary degree in university or college, then you're hooped. You know, that, that's kind of the, the message that I was conveyed in high school. It's just not true. Like there is a real career here in trades. And the one thing that, you know, is very prevalent in trades is that if you are training somebody, you're ultimately training them to go off on their own because it is quite easy to go off on your own, be an independent contractor. And uh, there's right. a lot of freedom that's afforded with that too. Yeah. And, you know, kind of like getting a little bit outside of that, because it, it does seem as though, you know, when we are hearing about this, like I was saying before, with politicians, they just do not really talk about trade schools enough. And then when we hear about this in society, we're not really hearing about the advantageousness of being a part of some of these fields. But, you know, kind of like stepping away from that a little bit. I know that besides those topics, you also do occasionally talk about politics, which perfectly aligns, you know, with what I kind of do here at Independent Thought. Yep. And so the question I have for you is when you do decide to discuss politics on your podcast, what types of topics do you like to discuss? To me, I think I would target what I would consider probably bipartisan topics. I'm not, you know, I, that's one thing that drives me nuts about, um, you know, the news in general, just the way that it's, it's all given. It's, it's handed to you with an opinion attached to it from either side. And I'm not, I'm not saying either side is more guilty of it than the other. I think, I think it's, you know, it's news entertainment for a reason. I think it carries with it a messaging and the way you're supposed to feel by the news rather than just the news itself. And then you can develop your own, your own opinion of it. Um, but when I like, for me, for example, right now in Canada, we've got two bills that are going through the house. That's bill C10 and bill C36, which both regard to or refer to, um, free speech and different different penalties that are now going to be attached to different forms of speech and all that stuff. And that's kind of, that's what draws my attention the most. It's one of the things that I kind of hold in the highest regard is the idea of free speech and uh, yeah. free and open discourse. You know, it's, it's part of why you start a podcast, right? You want to be able to talk about this stuff. Um, so that's, that's kind of the stuff that really draws me in politically. There's not, there's not much else that really interests me too much. It's funny. I have, I have probably, two political podcasts that I listen to and it's independent thought. And then there's one other one that I can't remember off the top of my head, but like I enjoy it in, in bite-sized amounts, but it's not something that I, I, I don't think I spend a, a ton of my time or, you know, thought process really focusing energy on that. But uh, yeah, that's where I'm really drawn to it mostly is usually when it comes to uh, freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is a very, very hotly debated topic right about now, especially as we are talking about, oh, the, the dreaded cancel culture. It seems yeah. like when you're talking about cancel culture or just maybe the broader topic of censorship in general, but you know, kind of again, transitioning into cancel culture, it's been a very consistently debated topic. I would say on both sides, you know, uh, when we're talking about tech platforms and them censoring politicians or, uh, just how people have been able to speak about, I guess, how about the pandemic? We've been seeing that has also been policed very heavily. And the question that kind of comes to my mind is, well, there's several questions that come to my mind when it comes to cancel culture. But I think when right. we were speaking before, you had referenced something that you like to call headline culture. Yeah. And I thought that that was a really interesting distinction that you were trying to make. So could you explain to me a little bit more in detail, what is the difference between 
what you would call a headline culture versus cancel culture? Uh, well, I can't take credit for this one. It was actually a guest that I had on who introduced me to the idea of headline culture, but yeah. I, I loved it. So what, what he was referring to and what I think it applies to perfectly. Um, so cancel culture is obviously wanting to delete people for their opinions, whereas headline culture is, and this seems to be as big of an issue as cancel culture to me, is the fact that people won't dig into a story anymore. You know, you'll see a headline scroll through your news, news feed and people just react to the headline. Uh, for example, um, one that really sticks out to me, and it's a recent pop culture example that I think most people will understand, uh, was the idea of the cancellation of the Dr. Seuss books, right? When people looked at this headline, they said, oh my God, like, why are we canceling Dr. Seuss? Like, this is insane. Let's like, look at what else is out there in pop culture. Well, if you read the article, you would realize that it was the own publisher pulling their own material. Nobody was actually forcing them or telling them that you can't put this out. And the fact that there was such an uproar over this non-story, it was only because of the way that the headlines were worded. And that's, to me, that's one of the most kind of indicting examples of it is it's like, like really all it takes you is one click and you can read through this article, get a few of the facts. It's not like they're being canceled or, or the books are being burnt. That's not it. They had a few words that are questionable. Like <laughs> the other thing too, is you've got to think of the audience when you're talking about Dr. Seuss books, like, you know, I, I have a really hard time with people who want to cancel, for example, comedians, because that material is meant as a joke um, and it's aimed at adults. You know, you're not going to really sway their opinions so much. You're not going to change any biases that they have. But if you're if you're talking about children's books, like we should kind of be cognizant of what what we're teaching them, because that is when you're most impressionable. And so, yeah, the uproar over the air quote cancellation of Dr. Seuss books was a uh, yeah, kind of a prime example of that headline culture to me. You are absolutely correct. And I will yeah. going to go on a very small little rant here. But, <laughs> okay. I, you know, I, I feel as though part of the Dr. Seuss thing that happened, this was like back in March of this year. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's very obnoxious to me because we have most people who don't spend a whole lot of time being engaged with politics on a day in and day out basis. And Honestly, rightly, you probably shouldn't because it'll drive you crazy. It drives me crazy, you know, but then you have the people who are constantly engaging and some of these people decide to take stories that aren't stories, but manipulate them to create hysteria for their own benefit, whether it's for clicks or ad revenue, so on and so forth. And so that stuff always drives me crazy because it, it feels like there are just certain people within the media, whether it's independent media sphere in YouTube or mainstream media sphere on cable or in publications who just take stories like this and just blow them way out of proportion for the sake of just trying to create viral moments, trying to create, you know, eyeballs on their product. And, and it, it is really gross. And then I feel like they don't just do it with stories like that, which are what you would call culture issues, yeah. but they also do it with legislation. You know, and sometimes, so you'll get a lot of misleading headlines that fall around things like Medicare for all or defund the police or universal basic income, mm -hmm. which was a very like hotly debated topic during the primary season here in America, just like 2019, 2020, when Andrew Yang was running for president. Yep. You and I briefly spoke about this. You have some thoughts on universal basic income. Could you just tell me briefly 
Do you think that universal basic income is a good idea for people going forward? Like why or why not? I think it would be a really interesting experiment. One that I think, you know, we're, we're kind of toying with um, when it comes to the COVID relief benefit, right? Like I, I think that there are some similarities there. I think it would yeah. be very easy to roll over that COVID benefit into a UBI. Um, but to me, and again, like I, because this is such a, it feels like a bipartisan issue. Like you've got a hard right line and you've got a hard left line. It's yeah. not something that I, I really, I, I'm not attached to either side on it. To me, it's just an interesting thought experiment because the two arguments basically seem to boil down to, you know, from the left, you've got a UBI would allow for a lot more entrepreneurial ventures. It would allow for people's creativity to bloom. It would allow for, you know, hopefully the flourishing of ideas and different creations. That's, that's the idea. Uh, and which maybe it will, uh, I, I'm not saying it wouldn't. And then the other side is that, you know, it may, it may put everything to a halt. You may have people who aren't going to actively try to, I don't know, contribute to society or yeah, basically just the antithesis of that, that you aren't going to have people who want to contribute, who want to do anything and but i mean at the bottom line of ubi is that it would hopefully raise everybody out of poverty which i think right. is something that is obviously um great it should be it should be tried for and i mean yeah i just i think there's got to be a lot of spending cuts in order to make that work i know that in the states a lot of the budget is spent on military in canada not so much um so it'd be interesting to see how they kind of made that all work but to me it comes down to those two kind of lines of thought. And I don't know where, I mean, I think I would kind of, I'm, I'm worried about it. I think in just the, I don't know what the effects would be on society. I mean, I think anytime we try to institute anything new, a, a grand idea like U, UBI, um, yeah. I'm always worried about maybe the, the things that we didn't think about or, or the shortcomings of it. That's it. It's not that, uh, but I wouldn't say that I'm hardline against it. I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm wary of it a little bit. I think it's a very, it's a very new concept. There yeah. are certain locations. I think most notably, I think Stockton, California, and I think uh, maybe Long Beach as well, if I'm remembering correctly, have tried this out. They gave some residents $500 a month, I believe. And from the data that they were able to collect, it seemed like it had an overall positive, you know, effect, but you know, with anything like that, you probably want to see it tested on larger scales and multiple different locations outside of just one state before you could definitively say like, yes, this works or no, it doesn't. But it also, it, it intrigues me, you know, but I, I think some of the arguments against universal basic income have kind of fallen along the lines of, you know, uh, again, people will get lazy, they won't want to work, so on and so forth. And it, and it just, honestly, it feels like it breaks down to someone's political ideology. Yeah. and. I know that everyone kind of has their own. I think when we were talking about political ideology, you were telling me that for you, you feel really rooted in the idea of personal responsibility. Yep. And tell me kind of like in your own words, like what exactly does that mean and how does that relate to politics? Well, for me personally, all it is is like, I like to, I like to have a say in things, you know, I like to, at least in my own life, that's all I mean. I, I, I don't want to have input or influence on anybody else's life. But to me, the idea of 
you know, if I can raise myself up, it, it helps me to then help others around me. I mean, we were talking off mic, but like I have a lot of siblings and, you yeah. know, I was, I was fortunate enough to get into the housing market, for example, before it absolutely exploded in 2015. Locally, it, it went through the roof. Uh, so I was lucky in that sense. But um, the idea of personal responsibility is just the idea that you're, you're responsible for your own life, for your own income. Like I, and again, that, that may roll into the idea of UBI and why I may be a little bit hesitant on uh, just, just as far as where my compass is. But um, at the same time, I just, I think that if you can build yourself up, you know, it starts to have kind of a ripple effect around you. You're able to help people around you. You're, they're able to help others and it just expands from there. But I think the root cause of it, it's always, you know, it's like you want to see to your own, tend to your own garden before you go to your neighbors, right? You, you just, it's the idea of trying to build yourself up um, and then you're able to help others around you is really the way I view it. Maybe that's a little bit utopian and not everybody would think that way, but that's my mentality as far as it goes with, uh, yeah, with personal responsibility. Yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from. I, I understand how you, how you get there. You know, the thing that I'm always interested about whenever I hear conversations about personal responsibility, it, it always feels like it's, it's rooted in a very partisan way here in America. Yeah. And I'm, I think it might be a little unfair to kind of to lump it into a box like that. But, you know, while I was having this conversation with you, you know, we were speaking about more or less the differences between politics in our separate countries here. And you were referencing how sometimes what happens here in America actually can influence what happens in Canada as far as oh, yeah. politics are concerned, which, again, maybe arrogant American here, but I, I just never even thought to myself, I mean, I guess in some way, you know that America has some, an influence on the rest of the world, but we don't really actively think about it. Like, how is what's happening with Donald Trump affecting, you know, like Canada, or how is it affecting Chile, or how's it affecting, you know, Nicaragua? Like, we, I don't really think like that, but how does American politics, I guess, like seep into Canada more or less? Well, the saying up here anyway is, you know, America sneezes and Canada catches a cold. So we, uh, it definitely, it definitely has an influence on us. Um, I can remember in particular, I guess it would have been 2016 when Trump was um, nominated or, or voted in, but I was blown away by, for example, the number of Trump flags in Canada, which to really? me, yeah. It, it, look, the look on your face right now is the look I had in 2016. Because, it, and to me, like, okay, so in regards to American politics, I find it, you know, as you we were talking about earlier, almost like um, entertainment news. Like I, yeah. you know, I, I view it, it's like, it's like my reality TV, right? Because it doesn't, it doesn't directly affect me. It'll have uh, kind of reverberating impacts on me, but nothing, nothing direct. So, but yeah, what was amazing to me is the fact that you know, all these Trump flags are flying around Canada and they have literally zero input and they will get zero output out of what happens there. And uh, yeah, it, so it definitely does. It definitely does influence it. Um, it's really laughable sometimes, to be honest, because yeah. we have no say in it. Yeah, uh, it, it's, it's interesting to think that way. I, uh, I, I, I would laugh if I was driving through Canada. I saw a bunch of Trump flags. I, I did, uh, yeah. <laughs> oh my god yeah it, it kind of it puts a whole different perspective on it because i know that you know we talk about being this global superpower these you know things that are floated around here in america especially throughout the news or especially fox news talks about you know american supremacy so on and so forth but 
it's it's a little weird to actually hear that it does have that kind of a an outreach here. But you know, speaking about the news in a, in a different sense, I, I think um, one of the last things I wanted to ask you here was, you know, when it comes to the news itself, there's been so many different stories that have kind of flown out uh, this year. You know, obviously the pandemic is still going on. You know, here in America, we're talking about police brutality, climate change, you know, so on and so forth. But uh, from your personal perspective, has there been a story that's particularly caught your attention this year? Oh, absolutely. Um, the one that has probably been the biggest, it, I think it sparked originally a couple of months ago, um, was this, the uh, discovery of the 215 bodies at the residential school system in Canada. Yeah. Uh, that was just outside of Kamloops, BC, which is about for reference, three and a half hours from me. So it's quite close, right? Right. Um, 215 uh, children's bodies were found, uh, some as young as three. Um, and it really sparked, I mean, it sparked outrage, um, understandably so across the country. And I recently had an interview actually with a guy from uh, Scotland and realized that the story is out there as well. So that kind of just reaffirmed that this story has gone global, right? And since... Since that discovery a couple of months ago, I just, I pulled up some facts on this because I wanted to get it straight. But so we had 139 residential schools in Canada and the last yeah. one closed down in 1996. So I was seven years old, you know, that's right. my lifetime, which when I found that out and I mean, I'll, I'll just give a brief rundown of this, but so of those 139 schools, eight of them have now been searched. And so far there've been 1,665 children's bodies found in those eight out of the 139 schools. Um, the other thing to keep in mind here too, is that uh, the residential school system was also in place in the States. Uh, I believe there's about 350 schools in the States. I don't know what the, the status is on the searching of those grounds, but um, you know, the, the part that I think floored me the most, and I actually did a podcast episode on it that was almost more reactionary. It wasn't one of my typical episodes, but um I was pissed because really in high school, I think the residential school system was at most a chapter in a textbook and realistically probably a couple of paragraphs and that's about it. Um, right. and, and like I said, it closed when I was seven years old. So it's not like this is ancient history. This is, right. I, I don't even know if this can be classified as history yet when you're talking about maybe one generation removed. And, and as far as the impacts on the families who were in those school systems, that's still being profoundly felt. And so to me, yeah, that story was definitely um, the most eye-opening. Uh, it sparked a lot of backlash, like I said, it should. Um, and for me anyway, like I started digging into as many facts as I could. I've read a couple of firsthand accounts on people who went through the school system, um, trying to get you know, acclimated with the story. And, but yeah, like it's, um, it, it was crazy to read that this had been somehow hidden. And again, like through high school, we have... Canadian social studies. And again, there was nothing in there. And I'm, you know, I'm fortunate not, nobody in my family has been directly impacted by it because I started to reach out and I got some feedback from that episode. And, you know, some people were like, well, how didn't you know about this? And I was like, well, we didn't learn about it. And nobody in my family was impacted by it. So it, right. you know, it, it pissed me off that we had never learned about it. It got me reading, got me researching. And so I'm, if anything, I think that's the one positive that can be pulled from this story is hopefully people do start to look into it do start to read a little bit more um but yeah that story definitely hit me the hardest rightly so 
I mean, it is, it's a stain not just on a, on a nation, but on everyone involved in it. And yeah. we haven't seen evidence of remains in here in America, nor do I know if there have been, if those schools have been searched you know, at the time of this recording, but they should be. There's no reason why they shouldn't be, especially mm-hmm. if you know, they've gone through eight schools in Canada and each one of them, they were able to find the remains of, you know, small children there that you would think that would just, that would, that'd be enough evidence for everyone to kind of just search everything all at once. Yeah, um, they're averaging 208 kids roughly per school that they've searched, right? Which is, which is insane. And I mean, you know, it, it's a, it's a disturbing, it's a nuanced topic, but I mean, for example, I, you know, there's, there's discussion. There was obviously um, tuberculosis outbreaks at the time. And I don't think that, you know, the, the, the intention of the schools, the explicit uh, intention of the schools was to kill the Indian and the child. And that's, that's verbatim. That's what the point of the, the whole school was. It, was. it was a cultural genocide. I don't know that, you know, I, I, yeah, it, it's tough to talk about. You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that it was a, a systemic, a systematic targeted killing of people, but it was absolutely and explicitly trying to wipe out a culture. They were trying to just trying to, again, to their words, kill the Indian and the child. So it's a cultural erasure. I mean, yeah. in every way, shape and form, it is yeah. um, definitely deserves some more spotlight. I uh, think I probably need to do an episode on it myself. It's um, just an ugly, ugly stain on North American history. And, you know, thank you for, for covering that in your podcast. Because, again, you know, subjects like this definitely need to have more attention brought on them, more eyeballs brought on them, or I guess ears in this case, but you know what I'm trying to say. Oh, I you know, know. As, we're, as we're closing this out, uh, just tell everyone really quickly, like, like, why should they come check out your podcast? <laughs> well, I, I really try to have interesting guests on, people who you may not – consider to have a fascinating story you know one guy that I had on and again I really like to highlight these uh these ideas of people really really kind of going against the odds to really really finding the fortitude to pull themselves up out of something so for example I had I had one guest on Marshall who you know he was 16 living out of his car when him and his then girlfriend had their first kid they were living out of a car for the first eight months of his life. Um, now they're married. They've got four kids. They're doing amazing. Like, so we touched on that story. Then I had a golfer, Dustin, who's going with um, Paragolf Canada. He had a spinal injury that um, paralyzed him at the age of 31. And yeah. now he's on his way back. He's, he's golfing. Like, I just really like to highlight some of these stories from people that you may never have expected. The trades workers who have incredible stories of overcoming stuff and just, um, yeah, hopefully a little bit of hope, a little bit of motivation, and maybe just a different look at tradespeople and blue collar life than you're accustomed to. I love it. Uh, Zach, tell everyone where they can find you like online, you know, where they can find your podcast. Just uh, give us a few different places where we can reach you at. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'm at plaid jacket philosopher on Instagram. Uh, I have a Facebook page. It's the plaid jacket philosopher podcast. Um, and then on Twitter, I'm at jacket plaid, although I'm not going to lie. I suck at Twitter. So <laughs> that's, I'm probably, I'm probably better on Instagram if you're going to follow me anywhere. Um, but yeah, that that's where you can find me. I'm on 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, CastBox, a bunch of the big ones. So you can search up Plaid Jacket Philosopher anywhere and it, it should pop up. All right, everyone. If you are interested in keeping up with Zach or the podcast, there will be some links in the description. So go ahead and go into the description of the episode right now and you should see some links there for you. Appreciate you coming on the show today, man. You know, thank you for coming on. You are welcome back anytime. Uh, for everyone else, we're going to take one final break and I'll be right back with my final thoughts of the day. Stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everyone. Thank you for sticking with us through this episode of Independent Thought. I want to say, if you are not already, please follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Independent Thought. That is the best way to keep up with the podcast if you are not currently a member of my Discord, which I highly recommend that everyone is. You can find the link to my Discord in my link tree, um, wherever you are following me on social media. I want to say thank you to my guest, Zach the host of the plaid jacket philosopher podcast. I look forward to your return to the podcast very shortly here in an upcoming panel. We'll talk about that in a second. First, I want to mention the fact that again, this is my last episode before my mid season break. Uh, the next two weeks, there will be no new episodes of independent thought, but when we return, you will have some brand new episodes. But in the meantime, there will be some new content, not new independent thought episodes, but some new content nonetheless. And that will be on YouTube, everyone. So make sure that you are subscribed to my YouTube channel, the link to which is below in the episode description. I will have YouTube exclusive content, content that will be on YouTube, but not on the actual podcast itself. I, I know that you know what exclusive means. I just had to say that anyway. But my point is, is that there will be some new stuff on YouTube. There will be candidate episodes that will be exclusive to YouTube. There will also be panel episodes that will be exclusive to YouTube. And I am really looking forward to these panel episodes. I hope that you all turn out for them. The last couple did pretty decently on YouTube for my really small YouTube channel. So I think that, you know, it should be even better going forward as I continue to get more and more subscribers. Uh, if you are not currently subscribed on YouTube, please click the button. It's free. Just click the button, click the subscribe button, click the little bell next to it. And then you will always be notified of new episodes because YouTube doesn't always notify people of new episodes unless you click that bell. So click the bell people. So we will be returning with new episodes on October 11th. If you have any thoughts about this episode, previous episodes, any episodes from season four so far, please go ahead and DM me. We are halfway through this season. If any of the first 13 episodes have caught your attention in some way, drop me a message. Let me know what you thought of them. Please subscribe to the podcast, both on audio versions, Apple, Spotify, video versions, YouTube. And if you like any episode that you hear, please share it on social media. It's the best way to get this podcast to grow. Thank you again for tuning into this episode, for tuning into the first 13 episodes of season four. 
Thank you so much. I will see you all on October the 11th for the 75th episode of Independence Thought. See you then.